begin with the story today. It begins in a beautiful uh, city on the Aegean Sea between Turkey and, uh, and Greece, built by a, or, or planned by a, a master planner, Alexander the Great. And uh, I mean, it had a perfect harbor. It was landlocked on three sides. Um, and after Alexander died, uh, they actually built the city through, the, through his master plan. They had extra wide streets. And, you know, most cities just kind of happened. It just, whatever was the easiest route was the easiest route. It's kind of like an elementary school with, uh, you know, the grass and where kids walk, you know, or college campus. And you're like, well, why don't you put the sidewalk right there instead of making everybody go around, you know. Uh, but but this, this city was planned out. Huge streets that went around the Acropolis, this uh, kind of small mountain in the middle of town. And, and up on top of this Acropolis, you had a temple to, to Zeus and Diana and uh, Aphrodite and, and Apollo. Beautiful temples when it comes to the, you know, the construction of it and the beauty of it, um, just toward gods that aren't really alive. Um, you know, and the, and the beautiful temples, they were covered in myrtle trees. Uh, they had huge flower gardens everywhere. The main street was literally called the Street of Gold. Um, sometimes in the Bible, you know, you connect, uh, you know, you hear Streets of Gold in Revelations. It's hearkening back to some of this kind of uh, stuff you could imagine. But uh, money just kind of flowed there. This town was rich. Not only, you know, did they have enough money to build a, a theater into the side of the hill. Uh, and here's a couple of pictures uh, of the place, but uh, you know, side of the hill, they, they could afford their own stadium, which was was huge back then. I mean, just like in America, you know, the only certain towns have a huge stadium, right? Tulare doesn't have this huge, you know. Think of the Astrodome. Okay, well now it's been replaced with Reliance Stadium, but I mean, in 1966, the Astrodome it was huge, you know. Um, but you know, Tulare doesn't have a huge, uh, the, you know, you know that type of structure. And they held all sorts of games there, all sorts of festivals to these gods of Zeus and Apollo and uh, Dionysus, and, and, you know, including Caesar. They would have a festival toward Caesar. And this town, you know, allied to Rome before Rome became a superpower. And 195, they, they built a temple to the, the goddess Roma, uh, which Rome was named after, uh, uh, named after. And this is unheard of until Rome became a superpower, and then everybody started doing this type of thing. And, and they built a special temper to, uh, temple to the emperor Trajan. And people would come, you know, all over from Asia Minor to festivals to these emperors and stuff. So it's kind of a, de you know, vacation destination. 350 years later, in February of 155 AD, people flooded in from all sorts of places in the Asia Minor for these festivals. And they would bring Christians to the stadium to throw them to the wild beast. They would say, repent for being an atheist. We go think, Christian, atheist? Well, Christians only worshipped one God, and they had no image of their God. So therefore, back then, they were called atheists. It's kind of backwards in our thinking. You know, they're, they're like, you should worship all gods, not just one. So they would bring them in. There's one old man... Uh, Germanicus, very old man. And they ask him, are you going to repent? Burning offering to, to Caesar. And he, his, his response was, I have no desire to live in a world that is full of injustice. And he called out to the beast, in other words, the wild animals that they were letting eat the Christians, come and get me. 
The crowd went into, you know, hysterics and, and, and the screaming down with the atheists, down with the atheists. You could imagine you've been a, a, at a big game, you know, where, where the crowd is just chanting and so forth. And then they started chanting, bring us Polycarp. Bring us Polycarp. And it was the name of the, the local bishop or, or, you know, kind of the bishop of, of Asia Minor in that area and stuff, uh, leader of all the churches in that area. He was an old guy. He actually knew John, and he trained under John for a while. And they thought if we can get him, then the atheists, in other words, the Christians, it would just all kind of peter out and fall away. Just like if we could get Christ, it would all fall away, right? You know, but that was their convoluted thinking. Word quickly spread throughout the town. The stadium's in an uproar. They, they ran to Polycarp to warn him, get out of town now. And he didn't want to leave, but he was kind of, in a sense, drug out of town by his bodyguards, you know, his friends and stuff, because they were coming for him. He fled out to the country estate against his will, and they searched and searched for days as this festival was going on. And, and, and Polycarp and the group was fasting and praying. One night, Polycarp had a vision. His pillow was on fire, and, and, and through that vision, he kind of, you know, as he was talking with the Lord, he, he, he just thought, God is going to have me burn alive. Imagine that kind of thought, you know, on your pillow at night. So his, his fellow, you know, fellow uh, uh, friends and stuff, uh, they grabbed him, they fled again, and, and they captured two of his friends, and they tortured them, and finally the friends told where he was at. So late one night, a, a group came to, came to get him about supper time. They were coming for Polycarp. And his friends were like, we need to get away. We need to leave now. Let's go out the back. And he said, no, God has a plan for me. And these guys pounding on the door, he came to the door and he opened it. The soldiers were stunned. I mean, not all of them knew who Polycarp was. They just know they need to go arrest a guy named Polycarp. And here's this 80 or 90-year-old man in early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, right in there, just standing there. He invited them in, gave them a huge meal. You know, I mean, got to eat, right? The arresting soldiers were eating with him, and he goes, can I have one hour to pray? And I'm sure there was a lot of back and forth conversation, but they finally said, sure. And it's recorded that his, his prayer was so powerful, so fervent, so gracious, so loving that these soldiers felt just completely awful. But they had a duty to do because if Rome found out that they came to arrest him and they let him go, they would actually be thrown to the wild beast or burned, you know, at the stake. You would take, you know, if you let somebody go, you would take on their punishment. So they marched him back, and all along the way, the, the leader of the soldiers kept talking to him. What harm is it in just burning little incense, saying, Caesar's Lord? Come on, it's just a statement, one way of just kind of being politically correct. It doesn't mean anything. The crowd will spare you at that point. And he basically said, I have no interest in doing what you're asking. He was staying firm to what he believed. He said, my Lord Jesus Christ is the only Lord there is. All night long they badgered him, and by morning they were starting to treat him roughly because he wouldn't respond to it. They dragged him into the stadium that morning. The crowd is in an uproar. Polycarp is finally here, and as he was entering, a few friends heard a voice from, from heaven, they say, and it said, be strong, Polycarp. 
No one else heard it but, but these guys. They marched them to the center of the stadium. Uh, when the crowd saw them, they just went wild and they roared to, to bring out the animals, just to tear them apart. But there had to be a trial, so they brought out the pro council, is what they called the court then, for this trial. And they asked him, are you an atheist? And they tried to get Polycarp to say several things. One, away with the atheists. In other words, away with the Christians. You Christians are idiots. But he looked up at the crowd and said, away with the atheist. He was talking about the crowd, not himself. They were like saying, just, if you just swear by Caesar, you'll be fine. Just curse Christ once. And his reply was, 80 and 6 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The pro-council basically said, hey, if you, don't, if you don't turn from this, we're just going to send out the beast. And his response was, send for the beast, for I will not change. Back and forth they went. Do you admit that you're a Christian? Then he said, give me one hour, I'll teach you. And they said, well, if you want to teach, teach the crowd. And he looked around the crowd and, and basically said, I will not defend myself to an unruly crowd. The crowd became so angry, the herald cries out, Polycarp has confessed to being a Christian. So you can imagine the big Polycarp, you know, and all that just going around and, and it, it getting all out and everything. This is the man who is the leader of Asia, who is teaching thousands who we want to burn alive. And the pro-council said, let the games begin. The crowd ran to get the wood, and it's recorded the ones that were most zealous were the Jews, which was the only other group that was monotheistic that only worshipped one God. These are the guys who should have understood. They tied him to a post. The crowd became quiet. And he prayed a prayer that he was going to receive this incredible blessing. It's the spiritual gift of martyrdom. Imagine that. Early church believed that dying for your faith was a precious gift from God, a special empowerment of God. It is said that as the flames grew up around him, the flames weren't really touching him at that point. They were just going around him. And the crowd, instead of seeing this and thinking, man, we're dealing with a real God here. In other words, the flames were coming up, but they weren't touching him. Uh, you know, instead of thinking, we better watch out. No, they became even angrier. And finally, the executioner threw, threw, or thrust a spear into his heart, and he died. This is what is recorded by his friends who saw it. And it's the first martyrdom after the disciples that's actually recorded. It's interesting. The fear of death is a strong fear, isn't it? Would you go to the stadium and say, yeah, kill me. I'm going to stand by what I believe. That's a hard one. The fear of death is strong. But as Christians, it's something that we don't have to fear. Today, as we continue our series about this is love, and, and you know, today I want to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, and it's about God conquering death. 
Death is, is a great tragedy of the human experience, you know. When I was a kid, I, I loved to, to read, and, and you know, and we get Reader's Digest and all these different things, and they would have sections in there that, you know, drama in real life. And then we'd have all these stories, and uh, it was interesting and exciting, but also terrifying. In hindsight, I should not have been reading them, you know. It's not the smartest idea, because it took me, you know... I already had this kind of nature of where I I saw everything and thought about everything and so forth, and it filled my very active imagination with all the possibilities of everyday things that could, you know, the leisure activity or, you know, or a holiday could all of a sudden turn deadly. You know what I'm saying? Maybe you don't. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. You know, a walk by the sea could, could lead to a, you know, a bite by a rare ca- uh, crab, which would trigger a deadly infection. You know, stuff like that kind of stuff. That's where my mind went, and, and that's how my mind worked. Uh, you know, a hike in the mountains should be shrouded with, or, or you know, a, a fast-moving storm would, would come in, and the weather would turn extreme, you know, and, uh, you know, a ro- or a road friend to a friend's wedding, you know, could become a nightmare all of a sudden when a semi-truck gets a, a flat, and on and on and on it goes, Okay. Brandon's kind of the same way. He's getting better at it. But, uh, you know, when he was younger, we had to watch what he read, watch what he saw on TV. Um, you know, uh, some of the discussions, we had to tamp down some of it because he would get his mind thinking, well, this could happen to us. Whether or not you're kind of a catastrophizer, you know what I mean? Kind of, okay, it's an Allen word, I don't know. Someone who imagined catastrophes are around the corner who live under a shroud of, of death. And as the saying goes, no one gets out of here alive. See, even the avoidance of aging is a, is a great industry now, isn't it? Everything we buy is to make us feel and look younger. And they just feed off of that to everybody. You know, I think it's Bob Dylan's song, Forever Young, for the... Four or five people who know who Bob Dylan is, and I know. Okay, all kidding aside, the fear of death is the fear of all fears. Sociologists will, you know, observe that that just about every society has its own version of of immortality symbols, uh, things that give the assurance of of living forever. In ancient times, it was about, you know, being properly enshrined or, or buried among the gods. And, and, you know, think of the pharaohs in Egypt and the Taj Mahal in India. You know, for Americans, it's about big houses and, and nice cars, big trust funds, retirement accounts. Uh, think things that, would, that we feel will, will help us live long after we even pass away. You know, we hand it down and so forth. And we want to make a name for ourselves, leave our mark and therefore carry out our legacy, uh, you know, and carry that legacy forward. Now, some of those things aren't bad, don't get me wrong. There may even be decent motivation, uh, motivations behind it. But, you know, we may be thinking about leaving the world a better place for, our, you know, the future generation, for our kids and so forth. It does crack me up, though, you know, my parents and the parents, their parents and so forth, that, you know, you want the next generation to do better and stuff, but then when they do better, you're like, well, I didn't have to do that. I didn't have that when I was a kid. Well, yeah, you're the one that got us here. Yeah, okay, anyway, it's a whole other thing. But, but as far as immortality symbols, something that makes us you know, live on past death. 
They all come woefully short. Death is the great ending, the great finale, you know, finality, the inescapable curtain call. So when Jesus went to the cross on Friday, it was anything but good. His followers were devastated. The dream was over. Like the disciples on the road uh, uh, to Emmaus said uh, that they had hoped that he would be the Messiah. I mean, their dreams were, were dashed. It had all ended. They hung their heads low. Their bodies, uh, you know, felt lifeless. Their hearts fell uh, fallow, and their eyes were swollen from weeping. How could this be? How could this happen? He was supposed to be God. He was their hope and future. But now, I don't know. I mean, it's good for us not to rush past that moment. Because the, the darkness and the tragedy of Good Friday capture often, you know, how we feel in life. Overwhelmed by the brokenness, brokenness in this world, filled with disappointment and discouragement and, and despair, aware of the darkness and the fear in our own hearts. Death is the end of all possibilities, and there is no answer for death. And if there's no answer for death, then all the other answers don't really matter, do they? But we can lift our heavy heads because love is as strong as death, the poet uh, you know, wrote and, uh, and sang in the Song of Solomon. But the father on Easter morning said, no, love is stronger than death. See, on that first Easter morning, God the Father showed the world that there, is, that the, there is a love that's stronger than death. The preaching of the New Testament, particularly in the books of Acts and, and later in Paul's writings, makes the point to say that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. This matters because we're not meant to see Jesus as some sort of superhuman figure. Brought to the brink of death by some evil villain who, you know, somehow musters up the last bits of, of life to burst free and, and so forth. The gospel writers and the first preachers of Jesus want us to know that Jesus really did do this. He really did truly die and he was buried, fully dead. He was in the grave. The mourners were there. But God the Father did not abandon his son in that grave. He vindicates his faithful obedience and his sacrificial death by raising him to a new life. Here are a few ways the New Testament describes it. Peter in Acts 5 says, The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him in his own uh, to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. Paul expanded on this in Acts 13. He said, we, took you, uh, we tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled in us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead, so that he will never be subject to decay 
as God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it's also uh, stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried in his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Paul would develop this further on later in letters and to the churches. And he was trying to encourage them. He understood that the resurrection of Jesus is not just good news for Jesus. It's good news for the whole world. Paul understood that. But some Christians in Corinth weren't so sure. And, and they wondered if all of this was really necessary to believe. Couldn't they just say that Jesus was a good teacher? A good man? And was still here spiritually? Why did it matter if he had actually been raised from the dead? <clears throat> These questions brought out some of Paul's clearest teachings on the resurrection. I want us to take a closer look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians um, 15. It says, By Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must, resign, uh, he must reign until uh, he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Paul is saying at least three things to us at this point. The first is this. Resurrection is the defeat of death. Paul calls death the enemy. I mean, let's be clear. Death is not our friend, right? <laughs> death is not a doorway into eternity. Death is a beast. It is the enemy, but it is an enemy that will be completely destroyed because Jesus, because of his victory on Easter, his victory over death. Could you imagine being free from the fear of death? I mean, how much fear do we have about, you know, the death and, the, you know, its finality of it? To, but, but we can look at that monster in the face and imagine the worst scenario of all and say that even that, even death, will not be the end. See, for the world, death is the end. But for a Christian, death is not the end. Now, I mean, in their minds, death is the end, okay? We know it's not. It's not the end for them either. But they go to a different place. When power is abused, the weapon that's wielded is the fear of death, just as in Polycarp, just throughout Christians all the way through. Tyrants and thieves and dictators and despots all resort to the ultimate threat, the threat of death. You don't do what I say, I'll kill you. That fear is powerful. But when death no longer holds its sting, tyrants no longer have any power. 
This is what happened in the early centuries, uh, you know, uh, when Caesar after Caesar would threaten to kill the Christians. You know, if you don't renounce Christ and worship the Caesars, yet these Christians were free of that fear of death. They all knew where they belonged. They all knew what they, they believed. Their belief held to the one who conquered death, the one who had been raised from the grave. This is why it's so important for us to understand what really happened to Jesus. He did not have a near-death experience and get resuscitated. Somebody didn't say clear and stick the paddles on him. He did not pass out on the cross only to be refreshed by cool air of the tomb. He died. His side was pierced, which caused the blood and the water around the heart to flow out. It's a, a, a medical necessity and the finality of death. The disciples were not hallucinating when they saw Jesus. This is why the gospel writers recount story after story of the story, you know, uh, time and time again, the disciples not recognizing Jesus at certain times. There was something familiar about him, but also something very different about Jesus. His body seemed to have new, perhaps, spiritual properties that allowed him to appear you know, in, in locked doors or locked rooms behind locked doors and, and so forth. And, and yet his body seemed to have the same uh, or similar physical properties where he could sit down and eat with them. Thomas could touch his scars and see his wounds. The disciples weren't using the word resurrection to describe Jesus' um, you know, going to heaven after dying. They had other ways of talking about something that, that was like the, that. And, uh, you know, when he, they, they said he was alive, they did not mean in their hearts, okay? They didn't just say, oh, well, he's alive with us. Like, like you know, uh, somebody's passed away and, well, they're still with us. You know, you had that feeling and so forth. And, uh, you know, the presence of, of Mr. B is certainly at our house. You know, Brandon Jews and his old desk and so forth. I mean, you know, so, but it's not the same. The ancient world had categories for spiritual journeys in the afterlife, or these hallucinations or, or visions of a ghost. And, but what happened to Jesus shattered all of those categories. They had no words to describe it. This is why the four Gospels, you know, offer somewhat differing accounts of the resurrection. So many different stories, so many breathless recountings of, of the, you know, something they had no words for. So by the time Paul began to write and, and he was writing to the Corinthians, he had to say to them that he is simply last in a long line of witnesses in the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, from what I received, I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to uh, Cephas, or, or Peter, and then to the, uh, to the twelve. After that, he, uh, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Have appeared to, then he appeared to James and to all the disciples. And the last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. 
This is the second thing that we can note from Paul's uh, letters to the Corinthians about the the meeting and and the significance of the resurrection for us. Resurrection is God's new beginning when all possibilities have ended. Resurrection is not the resuscitation like Lazarus may have experienced in the tomb. You know, uh, resurrection is not a hallucination. Resurrection is not a spiritualization of the afterlife. Resurrection is only what God can bring about when all of the possibilities are gone. Do you need a resurrection in your own life? What things have, in a sense, have been dead in your life? What possibilities have have ended in your life where the story has kind of gone off the rails? You know, I I don't know if you've ever seen a train wreck. Uh, uh, I used to work out at a grain elevator uh, in college. My dad grew up working at a grain elevator and so forth. But I've seen trains in the aftermath of them coming off the, the, the tracks, coming off the rails. And it's a major destruction. Everything gets torn up, especially if the train's moving fast. What, what has happened in your life that has gone off the rails? Maybe you don't want to think about these, these places or areas in your life because really, I mean, what's the point? How could that part of the story actually change? It's over, right? Well, that leads me to the last thing about the resurrection that we learned from Paul. Resurrection is a gift. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says in verse 21, for, the, the, for since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. You see, just as death has entered into the world through one man, so has resurrection of life through the resurrection of one man. Remember, the resurrection of Jesus is not just good news for Jesus, it is good news for the world. What did we do to deserve this? (laughs) Nothing. What can we do to earn this? Nothing. See, resurrection didn't, uh, you know, does not emerge as, you know, from potential. Resurrection is not just an achievement. No one can raise themselves from the dead. But in Christ, we shall all be made alive. That is an amazing feat. I mean, are you catching why this is such good news for us? One day, all who are in Christ will be raised up in glorious new bodies. All the fat will be gone. You know, I mean, just saying. We will all have bodies like Jesus. We don't know how much more... uh, We don't know exactly what the bodies are going to be like. But we know that we will seem similar in certain areas, yet radically different in other areas. Using the same material that God gave us to begin with. It will have new properties to it. All of that is wonderful, and it has led Christians saying for 1,700 years now, in the words of the Nicene Creed, that we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. But you know what? Resurrection life can begin today. It's a whole mindset for us. Paul, after writing to the Corinthians about the significant and the meaning of of resurrection, wrote this to the Christians in Rome. Romans 8 to 11. 
And if, by the Spirit, and if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. You can have a resurrected life now to a certain extent. In other words, your journey with God is now. It doesn't begin when we die and go to heaven. Our journey begins now because of the Holy Spirit who the Father you know, raised Jesus from the dead <clears throat> is bringing that new life to you. The same love that did not abandon Jesus to the grave will not let you go. He loves you with a love that's stronger than death. Paul finishes out the chapter in Romans 8 with a powerful assurance. It says, No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the presence nor uh, present nor the future, nor any pow- uh, powers, nor height or death, nor anything else in all of creation would be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because Jesus took death and let it exhaust its powers on him, because the Father in his love raised Jesus from the grave vindicating his faithfulness and demonstrating his his love for us for those that are in Christ Jesus nothing nothing not even death can separate you from the love of God this is love that's what Easter and every Sunday is about It's not just one Sunday. It's every stinking day of the week. Okay, maybe not stinking day, but you know what I'm saying. That is our life. That is our, 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 you know, the love of God is in us so much that we can take that out into the world every day and show people what true love is about because of what Jesus did on the cross. But it's even beyond what happened on the cross. It's what happened after the cross where he was raised from the dead three days later. And then it's even more than that. It was when he left the Holy Spirit to live in our lives to give us the power that is an amazing power that comes to a point where we don't even have to fear death. That is love. Let's pray. Lord, you have loved us with an ever, everlasting love. You sent your son to the cross and, uh, because you loved us. Jesus laid down his life willingly. His desire was to do your will. His love was your love. And that love he extended to us. I pray, Lord, that as we live our lives out this week, this month, this year, however many days we're here on this earth, that that love be evident, that that love be evident to this world, to this world that desperately, desperately needs a Savior. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. May his face never turn from you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.